Hey, Brandon here, and welcome to Transform Your Workplace. Thank you for the download today. And I just wanted to say real quick that with the coronavirus stuff, a lot of you are listening from the United States, but we have an international audience. So things are right now just kind of crazy from the coronavirus standpoint here in the United States. And I know a lot of you are in isolation right now and are probably listening to a lot of podcasts, probably not connecting with people a lot. So I want to just encourage you to connect with your people, send them a quick text message. I've been sending video messages to people and I'll hop on video calls when I can, but don't be alone. We're in this together as we kind of recover, but it's important to keep your social distance, really physical distance, the social distance, not so much, you know, still connect with people virtually, but keep your physical distance for now until things get better. If you're catching up on podcasts, definitely go back and listen to the ones that we published here. But I also want to just share a couple links to some of my favorites in the HR and leadership space. Work Life by Adam Grant is one of my favorites. He's got some great content there. Shout out to Hostile Work Environment. They're back on the podcast. And I really appreciate what they're doing. From a leadership standpoint, Entree Leadership has a great podcast. Lori Rudiman's Punk Rock HR is a great one too. So, you know, check those out. There's so many more and just, you know, run through a search and give them all a try. They're all doing really good work. And I think they're all really trying to transform the workplace like we are. So just wanted to open this podcast by saying, I appreciate you as an audience and I hope you're all doing well. Okay, so we'll get into today's episode. I have a conversation with Daniel Wolf. He's the president and CEO of Dewar Sloan and the author of Strategic Teams and Development, The Fieldbook for People Making Strategy Happen. In this podcast, we talk all about the teams and what makes up a strategic team. If you're in college or high school and you have those group projects and some people are doing all the work where others are just kind of chilling, that's not what we're talking about here today. Because we've all been on those teams where they're not all working harmoniously and together and maybe not even working strategically either. So we talk about and Dan really identifies and helps us define what's a strategic team, who's it made up of, what resources do they need, what do they need from the organization to be successful, to lead change. There's so much good stuff in this podcast. Dan and I, we could have talked for a couple hours on this subject, but you might as well just go get his book or do some of the research on this subject. But there's a lot of great stuff in this podcast. And I hope you get a lot from it in terms of building strategic teams for certain initiatives in your organization. So can't wait to hear what you think. Enjoy the podcast with Dan Wolf, the author of Strategic Teams and Development. Hey, Dan, it is a pleasure to have you on the podcast. Welcome. Well, thank you, Brandon. So this is a topic that I haven't really covered a whole lot of. I mean, we generally get around the idea of building teams and teamwork and communication and all that. But you've wrote a strategic teams and development, the field book for people making strategy happen. And this is such a rich book that we're not going to obviously be able to cover everything. But I thought we'd start the conversation by defining what a strategic team is and what are some types of strategic teams within organizations. Well, that is a good starting point, Brandon. There are many different kinds of teams. In fact, we use the phrase, there are 20 kinds of teams. I think that's true in large organizations and small. But our definition of strategic teams comes down to this. They're structures that enable 
and support people to drive results and progress and business evolution. And that may seem like restating the obvious, but it's not. Strategic teams are chartered specifically to help the company advance the direction and the integration and the execution of strategy. It's the work to be done by teams in general, but it's the work to be done that drives growth, performance, and change. So these aren't just everyday teams that do a task or a tactic. They're teams that company or move the nonprofit organization. Yeah, that makes sense. And you wrote that individuals and teams are really motivated more or less by their match of interest within the organization. And I'm curious what those areas might be that a strategic team might jump into. What happens when they're involved in a team that doesn't really match the interests? Well, I think you mentioned a couple of key things in your question here. And one is on motivation and one is the match of interest. Match of interest for me follows a couple of ideas. First of all, people come to this work of their role and their position in an organization with some kind of talent. We have this idea called talent blocks and beams. Talent blocks, and there are six, are basically an individual's knack. It's their interest. It's what they do well. It's what they have more practice in, perhaps what they're educated in, perhaps the things that they're recognized for, possibly at the expense of other things. So in these six talent beams or talent blocks, we have people with technical talent, and that's typically in areas where there is a specific certification or a knowledge or expertise in. There's analytic talent, and that's derived largely from understanding of data and data patterns. There's creative talent, which is coming up with managing and dealing with ideas. There's resource talent, another very important block. Resource talent is all about how people manage time, budgets, calendars, and get a lot done with not a lot of resources. The fifth area is solution, and that's how we prevent problems, intercept problems, solve problems, recover from problems, mitigate problems, etc. And then finally, we have relational talent, and that is the talent of getting along together and bringing out the best in each other. I think those basic talent blocks are at the heart of a person's motivation, but I think what also motivates them is how they're engaged to do the work of their job. And the work of their job, if you end of the research, is highly engaging and it motivates people. If it's purposeful work, it's meaningful. If they have the tools and resources to conduct that work effectively, if they've got good colleagues and solid friends at work, and if there's a sense of their own personal and professional development that goes with the territory, missing on any of those four points can really detract from motivation. It's a little of that plus the strength of culture and the meaning of membership in that team that motivates people and keeps them in the game. There's probably not a one-size-fits-all answer for this, but I'm going to ask it anyways. I'm curious how teams are formed. And you mentioned like strategic teams are doing something that's obviously purposeful within an organization rather than just handling a process or task. So a strategic team, are they organically formed? Are they set by leadership? Like what really defines the formation of the team itself? Um, Most often, uh, first of all, great question because you're correct. There's more than one answer. Most teams are chartered or cast, if you will, to solve a particular issue or priority, or they charter themselves to say, hey, we see an opportunity to address or a problem to be solved. And almost on a self-directed basis, that team will, will pick up the mantle and move forward. 
So we think of different kinds of teams, project teams and development teams, compliance teams. There are advanced teams, tiger teams. All of these teams have a different purpose. Most of the time, for people early in their careers, those teams are going to be assigned. As they get moving down the tracks uh, in their mid-careers, they may form their own teams organically. And there are times when teams are formed on a cross-organizational or trans-organizational basis where more than one division or more than one piece of the organization needs work done. And that team will be formed and chartered accordingly. When the team's formed, would you say there's anything specific, and maybe it's a list of things, that this strategic team would need from either leadership or the entire organization to make sure that it's set up for success? Yes. That's a quick and simple and affirmative yes. And it comes down to, I think, three things. First of all, members of that team and the team as a whole have to agree that they are working on some piece of the organization's strategic agenda. So they have to be engaged in what it is that the company, the organization, must deliver. It might be growth, it might be change, it might be moving some performance needle, but teams have to have a very clear and conscious focus on what it is that they are chartered to do. Second, they have to be designed as a group for the what and the how and the when of the work to be done in this group. So this is where Talent Blocks and Beams comes to the fore. You can't just collect your golf buddies and your bar friends and say, all right, we're a team now. <laughs> it just doesn't Are you sure? Like Are you sure? Works. That sounds pretty awesome, though. <laughs> in my experience, I've tried that 60 or 70 times, and it does not work. <laughs> Glad you clarified that. Yeah, but what does work is looking at the individual talent blocks and beams of individuals and the group as a whole and saying, okay, we're matched. We are cast in our roles to deliver something together. And that means we complement each other, we bridge and match our respective talents for the work to be done. And then third, there's got to be a sense of ownership for this journey. And the ownership is partially reflected in culture, but it's also partially reflected in membership. So I am a part of the culture that my team needs to manifest to get things done, but I'm also a member of something that is moving the needles. It's a purposeful, intentional membership. So I think if leadership can make sure there's enough oxygen for those three things to take place or those three things to transact, we're in good shape. If leadership constrains those things, if it knocks the freedom out of them, if it gets in the way of people, if it builds hassle maps in between people and groups and individuals and what they're trying to accomplish, leadership will be opposite. It'll, it'll present toxins for teams that are very difficult to overcome. You mentioned the word culture a minute ago, and I loved the section that you wrote about how effective teams are cultural assets. What did you mean by that? Well, they're an organization of any kind has tangible and intangible assets. Tangibles are plant property equipment, the cash on the balance sheet, et cetera, et cetera. But culture is really the everyday thought and behavior of people working to get the job done. And the job could be growth. The job could be performance. The job could be, you know, enterprise change. We view culture, obviously, it's a reflective of values and principles, standards and habits, et cetera. But culture is really two things in the context of this book. One is the expression of what matters in the enterprise. So what is our purpose? This culture is an expression of that purpose. 
and it's a foundation for building competence and readiness and confidence. So often we find organizations that have great people working in probably the right roles, but lacking in confidence that they have their teams all together focused on the game. Culture should be that foundation expression combination that says, here's how we should go about the everyday work of forward planning, decision-making, risk management, and problem-solving. That's what we're here to do. We're smart people, good people, working together to accomplish something that's difficult to do alone. We collaborate. We're thoughtful. We are part of the culture, and therefore, we're an asset of this company's capabilities. Hey, Brandon here. Taking a quick break to tell you that this episode of Transform Your Workplace is sponsored by Tresta. Tresta is a mobile app that lets you do business calling and texting from anywhere. With Tresta, you can set up your business phone number, download the app, and start calling and texting unlimited right away. Tresta is the best business phone app on the market. Growing your business is all about networking and communication, so it's important that you're available. If you've been carrying around a second smartphone, you're chained to your desk phone, or worse, giving out your personal number to anybody that you do business with, then you should give this a try. Tresta offers the call management features that empower you to communicate smarter and more efficiently, like auto attendance, call recording, user groups, and more. And you don't need any special equipment, just a smartphone you're already using. Tresta is easy to configure so you can set up everything yourself all online. Tresta is just $15 per user per month with no contract. So start your free 30-day trial today at tresta.com forward slash transform. That's www.tresta.com slash transform. Now back to the show. What would you say is at the core of your model for building strategic teams? Is it culture as you just described or is it something more tangible than that? It is more tangible. You know, in business speak, Brandon, I would say it's an approach to value creation. Most organizations exist to create value. Yes. I said value, not profitability. Profitability is part of it. Competitiveness is part of it. Taking care of customers is part of it. Being a good corporate steward is part of it. We call those natural goals, but that's how value is created along those four lines. So I think that at the core of our model is that strategy is about value creation, but it is powered by talent that is very specifically focused on results in those areas. And it's backed by a cultural agenda that once again is both foundations and expressions. So at the core of our model is we all come to work somehow in some form as agents of the strategic agenda of the organization we work for. We are parts of making that strategy happen. Strategy isn't something on the wall in the kitchen or the cafeteria. Strategy is what we come to do in our jobs every day. We're pieces of that equation. And I don't mean small pieces. This should be the joy of our work. I imagine that effective strategic teams are really highly engaged. And I'm really curious how you can measure the engagement of the team and also the effectiveness of the team as well. Yeah, that's a great question. Engagement, that's a popular popular subject and a challenging issue for a whole number of reasons. I mean, the, the research evidence far and wide suggests, unfortunately, that not all employees of organizations, large or small, are very well engaged. In fact, most are not. 
we look at a roster of engagement elements, and there are 15 or 20 elements, but I can sum them up in this handful. Highly engaged people working on these teams are generally pretty committed and have a sense of accountability that's above average. They see things in systemic and collaborative terms. They know working together to get something done is more difficult than it looks, but it's also essence of getting things done. Nobody does anything alone. Also in engagement, a lot of this is interpersonal effort and discretionary effort influence spread across the team and from team to team. A lot of these highly engaged teams are very attentive to order and arrangements. Somebody's got to be the shopkeeper on these teams and really keep them organized. And then finally, and this should come as no surprise to you, most highly engaged teams see themselves as continuous, perpetual, motivated learners. Uh, they're intentional learners. They're all about discovery. They're curious as hell. They just go and go and go. So if I stood back and say, you know, yeah, but how do you really measure those things? Well, I would say if you could audit directly and indirectly through fairly simple questions, do they really understand the strategic agenda of the company and their role in it? Second, do they look at their role very, very intentionally and very, very adaptively? Intentionally means I'm coming to work to do this, help drive the machine. But I'm also coming to work to get ready for how I'm going to have to do that tomorrow and the next day and the next year and the next year. So it's that dynamic, adaptive kind of look at oneself and one's roles. A third kind of engagement measure I would look at and we do this often, is that of getting a gauge on how connected people feel to the purpose and the others in the organization. So are we really connected to the purpose? Do we really get this? Are we in the band? And are we in the band with other band members? I mean, do we like and appreciate, respect and honor those we're working with? Or are they people we just can't stand and we don't like the purpose? That's going to be low engagement every time. And then finally, going right with that. This is all about passion and energy and trust. And if we are trustful of ourselves and others, we're going to be confident in the cause. We're going to be confident that we can move the needle. So those are measures I think that we can look at both quantitatively and qualitatively to say who's on board and who needs help. And perhaps who needs to be working for another organization. Even the most effective teams are going to run into challenges that will inevitably derail the team altogether. What are some of the common pitfalls that you've seen over the years in, in your research and all the teams that you've probably led? What happens with teams that would take them completely off course? That's like mankind's question <laughs> of how well, we want people forward. to avoid them. So I got to ask the question. Yeah, You want people to avoid them. And it's like always do right and never do wrong. It, it, you know, the world's not that simple. But in my shorthand answer to your question, Brandon, I would say that teams get drawn off course by a handful of things that are completely predictable. These things are so predictable that you can stand back at the beginning of team efforts and say, okay, here's 15 pitfalls or here's 15 landmines that we are likely to encounter. Let's just avoid stepping on the landmine. So one of those would be confidence about their charter. Are they really in the charter of the team? Do they really get what they're there to do? 
And we find teams where 50% of the members have no idea why they're on the team or where they're headed. And you can blame that on leadership or you can blame that on them. You can blame it on any number of things, but they're not confident about what they stand for and where they're headed. That's a problem from the start. Another problem is I'm just going to say communication, trust, and more communication, and then some more communication and some more trust. These things in strategy are not well served by a leadership demand from the top that says, all right, go forth and serve. And then the team has to scramble around and figure out what the heck that means. Teams are served by what I think people call over-communication and repeated communication and serial communication and then repeated communication again. There is just no sin, in my view, in repeating what we stand for and where we're headed over and over again. Of course, with the stories that go with it. So I was recently at a corporate meeting where the CEO, in my view, did one of the best jobs of human history in telling 500 people in a telecast, once again, here's what we're trying to do. It was the 44th time he'd done essentially the same speech with a little different stories in it, but the people cheered. And you know why they cheered? Because they got consistency and they got, you know, repetitive, inquisitive, helpful, consistent stories about what they stand for and where they're going. And I think people need that. Another challenge is conflicting goals and tensions. The rules change. The goals change. The goalposts change. Those things are, you know, they're common in organizations. Things change all the time. And if the team's not well communicated with, if those changes are disruptive personally and professionally, if they create conflict between team members, that's going to be a problem. Everybody's favorite, I think, and I'll keep the language clean because I think the other yeah. family audience here <laughs> is difficult people that we also call jerk wagons. Difficult people come in many different forms. But, you know, organizations allow these difficult people to exist and annoy and disrupt teams all the time. And until and unless the team pushes back and says, you know what, we could use help. We don't need your difficulties. We need your help. We need your, your favor. We need your competence. We need your confidence. Give us a hand rather than a smack in the head. That is the kind of thing that can help a team get back on course, even if they've been knocked down. Dan, what's the ideal size of a strategic team and what roles do those people play? Typical size, maybe not ideal, but typical size would be five to seven people. I've seen teams of 20 people. I've seen teams of two. And teams of two, if they can play great harmony and one guy does the lyrics and one <laughs> gal does the music, you know. It has a saying go with our hardest ship to sales a partnership and with just two people, that would be the <laughs> pretty challenging. Yeah, that's Two people is difficult, especially when one is sick. So I think when you have five, six, seven, eight people, you have the opportunity to have a portfolio of skill sets and experience and knowledge and expertise, a portfolio of talent blocks and beams that represents the diversity of an organization, different points of view, different areas of judgment, different senses and sensations. And in doing so, people can play these different roles. Now, to the part of your question that they asked about different roles, I've seen lists of 10, 15, 20 different kinds of roles on teams, and I suppose there are that many. I tend to break down the roles of individuals on a chartered team into five areas. And 
I don't think this is necessarily one individual per role, but I do think that most individuals who become very experienced in the leadership of teams will have played all of these roles at one point or another. So role number one is the organizer and arranger and director. Somebody's got to get their arms around this thing and say, here's what our team is chartered to do. So organizers and arrangers and directors do just that. A second kind of role is experts and thought leaders and specialists, people who know their stuff about a particular area of content. A third role, I guess you could call it integration and networking, and I think with that comes a certain amount of improvisation and flexibility. So people who can knit the parts together even when all the parts aren't there. I use the metaphor of opening a thousand-piece picture puzzle and discovering quickly that there's only 604 pieces in it. They'll have to solve it. That's what integrators and, and networkers do. They MacGyver things to get a solution. Fourth role is operators and task producers and checkers. And, you know, you can call these the worker bees of a team, but they're more than worker bees. These people are putting things together and they're producing tasks. They're finding more lean ways and more efficient ways to produce these tasks. And they're taking one plus one plus one and making that equal seven sometimes. They have to check their work. They've got to operate. They've got to stay in sync. They've got to be consistent. They've got to be able to work together. Fifth area, I guess I would call the executive and pathfinder and navigator approach. This is a little different than the organizer and arranger. These navigators and pathfinders and, and executive execution type folks are usually the point of the spear. They're looking around corners to figure out the next direction, and they're looking around corners for risks to their operation. So they're probably, you know, again, another dozen roles you could put on top of it, but I think they pretty much all fall in those five areas. What's a great way to, I don't know if audit's the right word, I identify maybe that a team is fulfilled in the terms of like resources, like systems, the roles and the people, knowledge within the group. Like, do you have a process for that? Do you have any ideas for how to audit? Yeah, I would start before the audit. I'd look at the requirements yeah. of the team. Kind of up front as if I were doing new product development or new service development, I'd go, okay, here's a team. And we're inventing this team to do some job, to perform work to be done, to help move the strategic agenda. So my readiness check for a team would be the same as the accomplishment check or the accountability check or the resource efficiency check. You know, I would ask if we've got the experience and expertise that's required. I'd look at those talent blocks and I'd go, first of all, match. And second, do they bridge well? For example, I mentioned these six talent blocks, technical, analytic, creative, resource solution, and relational. Uh, without going into too much depth and spending a lot of time on this, it's really important for a team to have these talent blocks match and bridge. And the bridge thing is the difficult thing. For example, when we have a really technical person who is not such a great communicator and not such a great team relator, I want to match them up with somebody who's got Boku relational skills. When we have somebody who's got really great analytic skills, I want to match them up with somebody who's got really great solution skills. Because the phrase paralysis by analysis, people get caught up in their own analytic work and they become less capable of actually driving decisions. So the people on the solution side to drive decisions, we match them up with people 
really strong analytic skills. And that bridge is, you know, is really important in a team. And then finally, another bridge example we could use is highly creative people. And we've known a few. I know you know a few. They tend not to appreciate clocks and budgets and calendars quite as much <laughs> yeah. as the rest of us. And so, you know, we would like to get our arms around them and give them a big hug, but say, we're going to hook you up with somebody that's got a budgeting background here. So we can take all those creative resources and capabilities you, you have and leverage them. Because if we're creative beyond the deadlines of the project, we're beyond the deadlines of the project, no matter how creative you were. Those things have to match and balance. That's the best way I can put it. Hey guys, it's Brandon here, your host of Transform Your Workplace. And I wanted to say that today's episode is sponsored by Pat Live. Did you know that 76% of customers hang up if they don't reach a live person? I mean, that's insane. And 85% of customers won't call back after an unanswered call. Stop forfeiting your business to your competitors because of missed calls. PatLive offers 24-7 live answering services, so you can spend less time following up and more time growing your business. And unlike many other live answering services, they're open 365 days a year. Their friendly and professional agents are all located in the United States and provide all the benefits of a personal receptionist at a fraction of the cost. They offer fully customizable scripts and call handling experiences to fit your business needs and fit seamlessly in with your brand. Pat Live is more than just an answering service. Whether you need assistance on nights and weekends, overflow call handling, or full coverage, Pat Live has you covered. They offer everything from message taking, call screening and transfers to lead collection, appointment scheduling, order processing, and so much more. According to business.com, PatLive is the best answering service for small businesses in 2020. With PatLive's virtual receptionists, you can turn more callers into customers, take better care of your clients, and improve your team's ability to focus and be productive. And now, for a limited time only, PatLive is offering listeners of this podcast 15% off their regularly listed rates. This offer is only available over the phone, so give them a call now at 866-708-2507. That's 866-708-2507. And mention this podcast for more information or visit patlive.com. Make every call count with PatLive. Dan, there are more books than I can count that describe the breakdown of teams being relational issues like you know lack of trust or just anything that might go wrong. I mean, one of my favorite fables with Patrick Lencioni is the you know, five dysfunctions of a team where describing the breakdown of the team and, and all the roles within it. So what are some ways that I know we can't avoid interpersonal issues, but what are some ways to develop the trust within a team? You know, respecting the work of Lencioni and any others who have looked at these trust elements and communication elements. I would say three things stand out above all others in our experience. And one is confidence, one is getting collaboration right, and one is credibility in our work together. So confidence is everything about managing information, how we share power and influence, how we cultivate the mindset of the team and the mindset of the organization, and how the team regards itself and rewards itself. So are we confident as a team? 
Or do we think Billy over there is a bit of a problem or Susie over there isn't picking up her slack on, on the team? So confidence, key number one. Collaboration. Everybody wants to collaborate, right? Collaboration is part of the religion of business today, I guess. But collaboration is really hard as it turns out. We've got research that shows there are about twice as many constraints, classical constraints to effective collaboration as there are incentives for effective collaboration. But we talk a good game when we say, hey, let's partner up and do this, or hey, let's collaborate, or we've got to collaborate to do this. It's much harder than it looks. So when we look at this issue of collaboration, we look at you know, shared principles, and easier said than done, the way we communicate, the pathways that we engage each other with, and how we share our partner-like behavior. So partner-like behavior to me is, are we reasonably good and fair contributors? Are we reasonably good and fair in our accountability with one another? And here's the zinger, I think. Do we forgive each other for screwing up? Most teams will say, no, don't forgive each other very well. You know, George over there didn't get the job done, so we're not trusting George anymore to give him a DC. Well, you know, it doesn't work that way over the long term. So collaboration is our second key. And then the third is credibility. Are we credible with ourselves and outside? Do we share our competence? Do we share our regard for others and our true interdependence? We really are interdependent in these teams. Some people would say codependent, and that might be too far, but it might be just right. And then finally, do we share our sense of reality? Do we share a sense of what matters in the near term, long term? If we do, that's great. But chances are we don't. Because we don't talk about it enough. We don't communicate about it and trust each other enough to do that. So some sum to your question, confidence, collaboration, and credibility. Those are the things that drive trust and they drive readiness and they drive resilience, which is a huge deal for teams. The fascinating aspect of teams, especially long-standing teams that are kind of perpetual or ongoing in nature, is the evolution of them. It changes inevitable. And I'm sure that drives people nuts at times, uh, you know, if too much change happens. But how do we make sure that the team, especially strategic team, evolves as the, you know, the players change, the systems change, the tools change, so that we're not like missing a beat going forward, that we work together collaboratively and adapt to whatever future may hold for us? First of all, I want to stand back and say there are many kinds of teams. And some teams have a life cycle of 30 days or less. Some teams have a life cycle that could be 10 years or longer. So the life cycle and the time frame of a team is a variable that we have to take into consideration. I've been on product development teams that lasted two years, and I've been on Tiger teams to solve specific problems that lasted 30 days or less. And so you treat the evolution and the cultivation and the curation of team capability a little bit differently with the time frame. Another observation I would make is that in larger organizations today, and I think the research shows that most people serve on at least six teams, not just one team, but six teams. And that might seem a little surprising for some in your audience, but I think as strategic teams in particular begin to supplant fixed parts of organization structure and in fact teams become the structure itself 
you're going to see more of this population of teams that has people on five, six, seven teams at the same teams come and teams go. They have different roles, different types, and therefore will get experience and gravitate to one kind of work and one kind of team or another. Now, a third thing I'll say here is diversity counts. And diversity counts everywhere, of course, we all know that. But in teams, in strategic teams, diversity is a giant issue. It's a giant opportunity to get people whose perspectives and background and experience and knack and worldview and mindset are a reflection of their different social and cultural histories, their cognitive and intellectual biases and histories and capabilities, gender and generational differences, personal and identity differences. One of the first teams teams I served on in young in my corporate career in product management and development, I was the kid on the team, and we had people who were in their 60s and 70s who had a tremendous amount of technological knowledge on a particular kind of mechanical system. There is no way I was ever going to complement their expertise, but there was no way that they were going to complement my approach and my discipline to helping move a product through a very complicated system. So part of our journey with that team was to match up people with different backgrounds and a different way of seeing things so they could move the needles in a different way. By move the needles, I mean, you got to have a different point of view on these things if you want to move them sometimes. Sometimes people get too old and inflexible on a team. And that's an excellent place to inject new people on the team, not necessarily younger people, new experiences, new temperaments, new behavioral profiles, familiar and unfamiliar roles. In our own practice here, we people into unfamiliar roles all the time because that is the nature of our learning laboratory. If you're not in an unfamiliar role, you're just relearning what you already know for the role you have. Dan, we barely scratched the surface of this conversation, this topic. Your book, Strategic Teams and Development, is so rich in content, and it's got the basically the playbook for developing strategic teams. So I want to encourage people to go pick that up, read through it, study it, bring it to your teams, talk about it. What else would you want to point people to and encourage them to do as an action item? Well, I think there's two things. Brandon, one is if you can develop a habit of of zooming in and zooming out on issues, some people call this thinking fast and thinking slow, books written about it, but the idea of mastering one's perspective so you can look at the near term and the long term, the core business and the adjacent business, the near term opportunities and the near term challenges, the long term challenges and the long term roads around. I think that is a skill set that everybody needs. It's not necessarily supported by a lot of our education resources. And finally, I would say if organizations as a whole, leaders in particular, boards possible, look at talent and strategy in the, ter- in the context of talent supply chain management, you got to have enough people with great capabilities to move forward in order to be successful near term and long term. And that talent supply chain idea for me means enough people in the right roles with the right experience, expertise, the right talent blocks, emotional maturity, adaptive maturity, all of those things. That's not a standstill thing. That is a dynamic thing. And when companies manage that really well, 
guess what? They're worth a lot more. And that's why boards and senior executives should really pay attention. My guest today has been Dan Wolf. Dan, thanks for coming on the podcast. You're a wealth of knowledge and and I appreciate you for shedding light on how to build strategic teams. I think it's a really important subject. Well, thank you, Brandon. I appreciate the opportunity to have this conversation. 